So, uh, first question. What have you found to be the most joyful aspect of monastic living? It's a very lovely question. Hmm. I think uh, to be living in community with people who value ethics and are interested in in a self-realization, in deepening understanding of Dharma and are willing to go through all of the many challenges and embarrassments and struggles that it takes to understand and let go of our conditioning. I think that's the most joyful aspect. Yeah, especially the embarrassments, I would say. Um, You know, looking back, the embarrassments was really, you know, to stand through those embarrassments and not, uh, uh, you know, turn back. That was really one of the most important um, moments in my monastic life, you know. I remember some very vividly. I never forget, you know, how awful it felt then and how when I'm now looking back, I can really see that it was a real turning point, you know, because I didn't uh, shrink away from just, you know, staying with it and then come out the other end and... Now I don't feel it anymore that it was an embarrassment. It was just a transformation, and and it can be pr- pretty rocky at times, you know. Especially if it's about really uh, deep material. Yeah, it, it couldn't be otherwise, you know. Yeah, I remember especially one time. I won't say what it was, but I was so embarrassed. I almost didn't want to go, you know, to the sala to pick up my food because I was so ashamed of something which I, I'm not ashamed about anymore now, but I had a, had a different understanding then. And I remember you were very helpful, Anna Bodhi, yeah? <laughs> you know? Because if you then have a friend, you know, then it's, it's much easier to, to keep going, you know. Yeah. So, and then, you know, not hiding out in your room for too long and, and come out again and, <laughs> and face the community and things like that. It's very empowering, you know, when you... Uh, once it's over, you know. Yeah. So my question here is, what is the what is unique about the forest tradition? Um, you know, about the forest tradition. What's unique is like simplicity, uh, meditation practice, and and community. I, I would think you know that the three most. Um, defining features of the, of the forest tradition. And that was a revival movement which started in, in some of the um, South Asian countries like Thailand and Burma and um, um, I don't know where else, but in those two countries. And we have been trained in a, in a lineage which is from the Thai forest tradition. And it started like in the 1920s or so that you know some of the monks... They were just, you know, they didn't want to participate in the, uh, in the monasteries, which were putting a lot of weight onto 
ritual and a lot of weight onto um, a rather empty ritual and a lot of weight onto study. And they were interested, you know, to, to go what they consider to be the true word of the Buddha. And they were also very much interested in, in living the code of discipline in a more committed way. And they just uh, went back into the forest and uh, they did a lot of wandering, you know, where they just had a few possessions with them and wandering from place to place and, uh, you know, just trying to to practice in nature and, and you know, yes, be not so uh, dependent on huge uh, institutions in order to you know, which takes a lot of, of effort to kind of keep them going. And then, you know, some of those monks were very successful, like the founder of the lineage, we have been trained in Achan Cha. And then, you know, over time they became establishment themselves again, you know, because they became the teachers of the king and the queen of Thailand and had lots of support and then ended up with hundreds of monasteries, you know, arising around them. So then, you know, what they once have been trying to do, I mean, it was lost to a certain extent again, you know. But the beginnings, you know, some of the, of the, of those values which set them, you know, onto this path in the beginnings, they are still there, but they are not anymore in that purity that has been lost, you know, through, through uh, being extremely successful, actually. And then, you know, a few years ago, uh, some of the nuns of that, of that lineage broke away because they weren't allowed to take higher ordination, and we are two of those nuns. And we are also saying we're going, going back to the original teaching of the Buddha, you know, who has given higher ordination for women. And, <laughs> and if we are too successful, we are also going to be, you know, again, uh, losing maybe some of that freshness which you have at the beginning, you know, when something starts new. And then the next thing will happen. So we are just part of that... Natural law. Natural laws again, you know. <laughs> yeah. That's really interesting. You that you can do in your time. Huh? Uh, this question is: What is the lesson in accepting impermanence? Does that mean suffering? <laughs> does that relieve suffering? Ah, oh, does that relieve suffering? Thank you. Sorry. What is the lesson in accepting impermanence? Does that relieve suffering? You know, when we see the, the changing nature of things, we might be, let's, let's say we're, we're in a situation that, and a lot of suffering arises. There's, there's, this, there's something that, that's, maybe uh, we've had a great loss, or there's something that we really want and that we can't get, or, uh, or maybe we, we have um, physical pain that we want to get rid of. And so there's some situation where 
it's kind of inevitable there's going to be dukkha, suffering. And the more we identify with that and, and tighten around it, the more painful it gets. And the more we can open and allow the feeling to come through and the experience to come through, it's not that the pain of it doesn't, isn't still present, but the suffering is, is less intense. So it's like with, with, with grief, you, know, you can have enormous grief. And if, we, if we're identified with uh, being someone who shouldn't feel grief or that people shouldn't, you know, my friends shouldn't die, then we're going to be hurting a lot. But if we can know, okay, you know, everything changes, everyone that's born dies. This is the, the truth of the way things are. This is the natural law again, actually. All that is born dies. And it, it doesn't make us indifferent to what's going on, but it, it eases the pain. So we relax, we kind of open our grip a little bit around the, the, the painful situation. And then grief can come through. And it might be very intense grief, but it doesn't necessarily have to be suffering. It can be just a relief, actually. It can be the, the perfect response. And also knowing that that changes. Grief is impermanent. So wherever we attach and identify and hold on and make things permanent, because, because they're not permanent, nothing is permanent. So wherever we try to do that, to make things permanent, whether it's something that's painful or pleasant, we suffer because everything is changing all the time. So the more deeply we can know impermanence and change, then the more we can allow life to live through us. We can let the lessons be learned and, and go on. We don't have to uh, control and push away and grasp hold of. So certainly uh, the more deeply we, we uh, accept impermanence, I mean, it's kind of like, it's a bit like saying, you know, should we, can we accept that we're going to die? I mean, you know, you might not accept it, but it's going to happen anyway, you know. Impermanence is happening anyway, continuously, without a moment stopping. So accepting the truth of the way things are will inevitably lead to more freedom and uh, release. <clears throat> Somebody writes an to me saying that I said this afternoon in the interview something like about doing the practice and then what is supposed to happen will happen. Can you say more about what you meant by supposed to happen? Did you mean something like whatever is meant to be will be? Does this imply that there is a larger plan for us like God's plan. And what I was meaning when I was saying that was what we did, what we said before in that chant. You know, I am the heir of my karma, born of my karma, abide supported by my karma. Whatever karma I shall do, of that I will be the heir. And the word karma means action. So you know, whatever action with intention we are doing, we'll get the repercussions of that. At one point, we don't know, you know, in terms of timing when it's going to come to us. But we can rest assured that, um, you know, 
there's not, not a, a God's plan or anything, but it is our own actions with intention which are creating the environment we live in. And that's what I meant when I said that. And Ajahn Chah was often you know, quoted for saying, if it shouldn't, it wouldn't. So, you know, there's nothing which happens is, is a coincidence in that sense. And we can learn from everything. And some lessons are very hard to learn. And, but I feel, you know, that, that um, understanding makes it easier to open to the lessons and learn from them. Please advise as to the best way to practice with pain that draws or claims all your attention during a sit. Thank you. So this also came up in their interviews a little bit. So uh, you know, the mind will go to what is most grabbing of its attention, whether that is pleasant or painful. And in the meditation practice, you know, if you're sitting for an hour, it's quite often that the body will start to get painful. And that can be because of a, a you know, a ten, like a, a straining, or it can be because of tension, just it just wants to move, and there's a kind of a tightening up around the you know, different parts of the body start to tighten up, and then it starts to become painful. So, you know, it's really, really common in the retreat situation for, the, for there to be pains in the body that you don't experience in your ordinary life. And that, to, to a large degree, can be tension pains uh, rather than a physical ailment. But you might also have something like a back problem or a you know, hip problem or something where there is pain. And then the, because it's the most it's shouting the loudest, it gets the most attention. It's kind of simply as simple as that. So in the, in the meditation practice, well, first of all, if, it is a, if it's a physical ailment, if, you've, if you know you've got a, a, a torn tendon or a, you know, your back's out or something, then you have to take care of it. Don't just push through. Don't, uh, don't let your willful mind push through without listening to the body. You need to listen and respond to your body. But if it's uh, something that's just happening while you're meditating and then when you get up and move around it's not anymore, then you can just let it be there and notice how the mind just grabs hold of that pain and then starts worrying about it and creating stories about it. And before you know it, you're already... You know, making an appointment with the hospital for when you get out of the <laughs> retreat, and you know. So, one way of working with that is to is to notice where there isn't pain, similar to when you know the, the hindrances grasp the mind, and then we notice when the hindrance is present, but we don't notice when it's not present. We kind of take that as normal. So, say for example, I got a pain in my hip, and if I'm not if I don't train my mind, it just goes to that pain and then it starts to proliferate. But if I train my mind, I can, I can scan through the body. I can look from the top of the head down to the soles of the feet. I can see what pleasant feeling is here. And just notice any pleasant feeling. It's not that the painful feeling isn't there, 
but I'm actually paying attention to pleasant feeling at the moment and seeing what's pleasant, making the way all the way down to the feet. And then from the soles of the feet up, what painful feelings are present? And I might find that there's more than that one. There are others that are a little bit less intense. And I notice them as I go, but I don't stop. I don't get stuck there. I just notice them, make my way up to the top of the head. What neutral feelings are present, neither painful nor pleasant, sweep through the body down to the soles of the feet. That's one way. So you can sweep through noticing three kinds of feeling, not just one. That's one way. And if it's, if it's too intense and you can't get your mind away from it, so to, to sweep in that way, then let's say pain in my right hip. What's happening in my left hip? Nothing. It's quite kind of comfortable. So then, okay, painful right hip, not painful left hip. It's already starting to balance. Painful right knee, not painful left knee. Not painful right ankle, not painful left ankle. Not painful toes, not painful toes. Ooh. You know, and as you start to notice, like you can do points. You can do shoulders, elbows, hands, hips, knees, ankles, toes. You know, notice points in the body and just see, is there pain or not pain? So then you're opening the mind up from grasping around a pain to seeing the bigger picture of, you know, well, what's going on in the body. Mostly is no pain. And here and there, there's pain. So, uh, so that's a way of working with it. And if there's a, if there's a, a chronic pain... I mean, I don't know much about working with chronic pain, but what I've heard is to... One thing that's very important is to not, f- not focus on the pain, not to absorb into the pain, but to create a space around it. So to develop more of a spacious awareness. So the mind is not just here in the body. or It's, it's big. You know, the mind can expand quite a large, to a large degree. So to create space around chronic pain rather than kind of worry and nag around it. So that gives a bit more of a, a, a context and an ease, an easing. And also to recognise that pain is a teacher. You know, we're born, when, we, when we're born there is pain, it's part of the birth process. And you know, through our life we experience pain when we die, most likely for most of us there'll be pain. So it's not wrong or bad, it's just part of being born. And it's a teacher. What are the four foundations of mindfulness? The, the first foundation of mindfulness is foundation of the body. The second one is foundation of feelings. The third one is foundation of mind states. And the third one is, uh, and the fourth one is uh, the f- foundation of phenomena or dhammas. That's how mind state, you know, manifest in the mind as, for example, the five hindrances, the seven factors of enlightenment, and so on. That's the four foundation of mindfulness, and they just make, you know, make the field of experience accessible for us, because, you know, it kind of gives us a template according to which can in, we can investigate experience, we can, you know, break that whole thing of experience, break it open into and 
break it open into those four foundations. This is a bit easier to access it in that way. Okay. I have another joy question here. Sometimes pure joy brings tears flowing down my cheeks. How can I balance fully meeting joy with equanimity? Lovely. So, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's beautiful that those mind states can arise, isn't it? That there can be such a sense of pity, as uh, I sense was speaking about pity and, and rapture, joy. So, you know, you can, you can let it be there for a while and enjoy it. You don't have to quickly move on to the next thing. It is a wholesome state and it's uh, one of the factors of enlightenment. So, you know, allowing it to be there, letting the, letting the body and mind fill with that joy, let it be appreciated, enjoyed. And then after a while it gets a little bit too intense and uh, it's no longer kind of a, you know, it's the, even the sort of enjoyment of it starts to get a bit, it's a little bit too much. So then I would recommend just using the breath and particularly the out breath to start to calm the joy. So just like letting some of that intense energy out through the out breath, letting it calm and letting that calming and sort of soft, softening joy infuse the body, let it go through the whole body. And as you keep, stay mindful and keep um, putting your attention on the out breath, it will naturally calm down and then that will lead to more like a, a state of tranquility and naturally in that process also concentration will the mind will collect so there will be a certain amount of concentration and uh, the equanimity uh, maybe I sense you might have more to add but the equanimity also comes through knowing the, the the changing you know you see the first the mind was restless then it then it started to to pay attention to, to, be, to become mindful and then uh, investigating what's going on and then the joy starts to come and then it's really intense and beautiful and rapturous and then that's a bit too much and then it's wanting to calm it and, and then it starts to cool down and settle and then the concentration and then it's just recognizing that, that whole changing nature. So the equanimity is kind of like a result of seeing that process of change. And that none of it, and also reflecting on none of it is who and what I am. You know, it isn't an attainment that I've just had. It is a wholesome state of mind that has arisen, has been present and is, is deepening into a, into a different state. So. That's for that, how I would say about the equanimity. I don't know if you have There's that. also a question about equanimity. Okay. I find it a lovely example, you know, how equanimity can be described as like, you know, the laugh of, of grandparents for, a, for their grandchild, you know. When they had children, they were much more involved, you know, with having to tell the child what to do and what not to do. But if you're grandparents, you know, then the father and the mother will discipline the child and the grandparents, they, they just... You know, they have seen it all, basically. They don't get so caught up anymore with, with all of it. They just kind of 
equanimous really because they have have seen many things coming and going. They are not anymore so caught up. And that's you know that's what a good way to describe equanimity. And uh, here's another question, you know, uh, are equanimity and not reacting synonymous? I, I think, you know, equanimity is, is the foundation on which to stand and then, you know, non, we are not anymore so poised towards reacting. We have more, you know, the same as the love of a grandparents for their, chi- for their grandchildren. You know, we have we have seen it all and we know that you know, reacting just you know, as a knee-jerk reaction is, is, is not leading to any lasting solutions or to, to happiness. And there's more capacity to, to just, you know, be with what is and then see what is a skillful response. And, uh, and the question here is, how does equanimity work with Vedana? Pleasant, unpleasant, etc. They still occur, but yeah. So if there's equanimity, you know, if there's pleasant feeling, there is more capacity to really fully taste the pleasant feeling and not get carried away with it. Therefore, pleasant feeling can be much more satisfying, you know, if we receive it with equanimity. And if there's unpleasant feeling, then you know we have more capacity not to get carried away by defending against it, by distracting ourselves, you know, by keeping it out. We have more capacity to just let it you know, wash through, not holding on. Just making, you know, making a bigger space for whatever wants to arise, to give it the space and then you know, give it the space to cease. Because equanimity knows that everything is arising and ceasing and it knows that you know, we don't have to interfere with the process if we allow the process to just take its course then that's the best way to meet it and this equanimity is born from you know from insight from having observed that progression as, as you were describing it you know what we or what I yesterday spoke about the seven factors of enlightenment just seeing that very clearly, you know, everything which is arising is ceasing. And in that knowing, you know, is, is peace. It's very, you know, sounds very simple, and, but it just really sums it all up. Question: In my life, I have been aversive and shown ill will by sharp and biting speech. Is it ever too late to start being a better person? <laughs> well, whoever wrote this has got a lot of people with you right now, <laughs> including us. Yeah. Certainly, never too late. Never too late to change direction, and even just the fact of acknowledging that and and asking that question that in itself is a, a clear indication now is the time now is the time and then maybe you have to look at why you know what is it that you're defending what is it that you're pushing away through this harsh and bitter speech and 
rather than keeping the world out, keeping people away from you, now you have to maybe start to allow yourself to be a little bit vulnerable and to feel some of the feelings that that, that speech keeps keeps at bay. And uh, you know, as, as long as we want, as long as we have the wish to change. It's amazing, it's amazing how much, you know, what we can transform. And I think uh, you know, now there's also all of this information about brain plasticity and how if you really apply, um, well, mi- mind and speech, you know, it, in, if, you, if you really start to kind of change the way you think and the way you speak, it, it actually changes your physical brain the actual pathways in your brain change. So, you know, just as if we keep making the same bad habits again and again, it's like a, making the course of a river, you know, it gets deeper and deeper and deeper. But once we start to change that course, the old one start, you know, gets grown over. It's no longer, it's no longer where the mind goes. But it'll take some effort. And maybe uh, one of the things that would help would be to, you know, like, to, to say to friends, you know, this is what I want to start doing this. I'm, I'm, I don't want to keep speaking in this way. I don't want to keep doing this. Can, can you help me? That might be a good start. All the best. Sadu, sadu, sadu. <laughs> You're right. Speech is the, one of the most difficult things, really, you know. Yeah. It is very difficult. It's like, you know, we want to get rid of that painful energy through just throwing it at somebody. And it just doesn't work because afterwards we feel remorse, you know, and then we have to make up for it. It's very complicated. So it's better to kind of contain the energy and, and transform it if we can. Yeah. What are the biggest changes you see in yourself after 20 years of meditation practice as Buddhist nuns? For me, one of the things is like it has demystified meditation for me a lot because I had all of these ideas, you know, what meditation is all about and how, how it has to be in order to have results, you know, in, in terms of what you said, you know, that you want change, that one's habits are kind of gradually, you know, worn thin. And so, I, you know, I have I've seen very clearly that uh, what the meditation has done for me is, you know, that I have lost a good amount of fear of my own thinking process that you know that I can open more fully and look at at what's going on in the mind and not not believe it anymore in in the same way I did you know before I meditated and um, that I have learned you know beyond any doubt about you know that if you turn towards that which is difficult this is really the best thing to do rather than turning away from it and also, you know, when there is help needed, there's always help coming in some way, you know, if, if one is open to see, to, to, to notice it, you know. 
in terms of a book falls into your hand or somebody says something and sometimes you know, also much bigger things than that happen. There's always help there. And that's also something I've learned. And Um, what do, do you have? Have you learned something? What is it? Is it learn or <laughs> check? What does it say? Here. What are the biggest changes you see in yourselves after 20 years? I suppose the first thing that comes to my mind is when I first started to meditate and before I started to meditate, the amount of confusion and fog in my mind was, was huge. And uh, maybe there'd be little glimpses of, of, of uh, sky, you know, here and there. And now it's much less. That's the first thing. Much less confusion. And also courage. You know, I think I, I was quite a shy person in some ways, quite fearful in some ways and uh, oddly enough living as a, a Buddhist nun has, has forced me into situations where I have to confront many fears you know, like sitting in front of a large group of people and speaking terrified when I first had to do this I was just <laughs> sat absolutely terrified for several days when I first was in this, unfortunately I wasn't, you know, there was a main teacher and I was just the sidekick, but it was a terrifying experience to sit like this with all these people in America. Because <laughs> 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 now it feels quite comfortable, you know, I feel like, oh, so nice to be with these people practicing. And so uh, I can see that uh, I'd say my world has got a lot bigger and my understanding of the teaching has got deeper and I think uh, I don't know if that's anything to do with being a nun or just to do with the years that go by I've realised that the learning never stops mm. and that's, uh, that's really, uh, that's, that brings me a lot of joy I think I used to think like you get to a certain point and, that's, and then you're done you got it and you just get on with that and, and now there's a sense of like, wow, you know, just never stop learning. There's just always something to learn. There's always more to understand and deepen and let go of. And so there's a certain uh, enjoyment in that rather than the sense of being somebody <clears throat> trying to get out of samsara, get enlightened as soon as possible. It's more like, oh, there's this kind of interesting process of life, life and death and... Uh, you know, coming together and falling apart. and So there's more of a sense of interest and, and uh, presence, really, with all of that. And curiosity, where's it all going to go? Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> it's my turn, is it? I don't know. I don't know. Actually. It doesn't really matter, does it? That's a difficult one. Some we don't want to answer. <laughs> okay. This ties in a little bit with the 
with the uh, pain question, but I'm going to read it out because I think it's worthwhile. For the last year or so, I regularly had a lot of pressure in my head while doing sitting meditation. Sometimes I become afraid that my head would explode. The pressure is that intense, so I stop sitting. The pressure doesn't seem to be triggered by fear, but my, but my fear of it seems to make it more unbearable. Do you have advice about how to handle odd or intolerable sensations that arise during sitting practice? I, mean, I have spoken about you know, phantom pains and that kind of thing, but when I read this it reminds me of somebody, a monk, who's been in the robes for many years, who has very severe head pain, pressure in the head. And when he first started to have this pressure in the head, he was told uh, by another monk, I think, you know, concentrate on the pain and it will go away. And what happened, it got, it got worse and worse. And it's got to the point, it, got, it got to the point where it just became this chronic condition. And uh, sort of something like 37 years later, it's still really debilitating to the point that he can't really meditate. So because I happen to know that story, I, I wanted to respond to that question and just say, Maybe you shouldn't be sitting. Try another form of meditation. Do walking or do yoga. You know, mindfulness can be can be exercised in in any posture. So not even just sitting, standing, walking, lying down. It can also be, you know, the Buddha speaking about while stretching, while dressing, while eating, while drinking, while while defecating, while urinating. These are all times to meditate. So if the sitting practice is creating this this intense pain, try a different kind of practice. And then also I'd suggest to to, um, work, find ways if, if you can bring the energy down into the feet or into the earth. So often energy comes up into the head because it's because of a lot of thinking. That can be one reason. It's not the only reason, actually. But that can be one reason. And we can train the, the attention to go more, you know, to be more earthing, so in the feet and down into the earth. But that isn't always the case either. Some people are just built, you know, with, with a lot of energy in the head and tendency to migraines and so on. So, so don't push it. But to find other ways of... Uh, Meditating and bring mindfulness that don't cause so much pain. That's my suggestion. We're not going to get through everything. Yeah. Does so. taking precepts uh, mean you are vegetarian? Uh, actually, you know, in we are arms mendicants, so we are supposed you know, to eat whatever food is given to us, and uh, you know, sometimes. People bring meat, but since we are since the last few years, we actually have made it let people know that we prefer vegetarian. Since you know, uh, it has you know become very much you know public knowledge that you know actually production of meat is and and also like dairy and so on is number one. It it's it has a big impact onto uh, climate change. And number two, also the way how animals are kept, you know, in slavery for producing meat and and all of that and dairy. 
we, we just don't want to take part in that. So that's why, you know, we are vegetarian and try, you know, going in direction of vegan and we suggest that also, you know, to other people to do that because I think it's a very important contribution, you know, to uh, alleviate suffering on this planet. There's some questions that are about more about when when one goes home, so we can yeah. look at that later. Just that. Can you speak more on the natural law of non of no self, <clears throat> no self, specifically how it relates to social identities that shape our lives? I'm having difficulty with this concept in the context of social oppression. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, no self is not, it's not a denial of self. It's not a denial of our sentience or of feeling or of uh, how we're affected. It's an understanding of, of the process, that, that what we call a self is a process. And that process is influenced by, by different things. So it's influenced by the way we, we use our own minds. It's influenced by what we put into our body, how we use our body how we use speech, all of these things influence this process of, of me and, and mine. And uh, really there's, I, I think the way to, the thing that needs to be mentioned is that there's, there's two different ways of looking at reality. So there's the, the ultimate view in which there is no anything. There is, there is a process going on. <laughs> it's, it's constantly in a state of flux. And uh, you know anyone who's who's even sort of slightly leaned towards physics over the you know, looking at what's going on in physics over the last I don't know 15 years or so, you know, physicists looking for the building blocks of the universe and they don't find anything. They find like well we don't quite really know what it is and we don't really know what it's doing and um you know so. You know from even from a scientific point of view you can't find something that, that all of this has, is made from. So, uh, so there's this process, you know, this process of body that begins with you know, the sperm and the egg meeting and then the, break, the dividing of cells and the growing of a baby and a womb and birth and then eating and drinking and growing and changing. And, it's, and, the, and that growing and changing never stops but we call it me and mine. So the, the no-self is, is, uh, is inviting us to, to see the changing process of self. And that you know, even we might have a very, very strong idea of, of who we are based on our background, our, our conditioning, our, uh, our family, our way of thinking, what we find when we practice is that that can change, can change drastically. And not only can, can what we are, you know, the way we are change, but also our relationships to others, and then that allows them to change. So we can kind of release old patterns that even go back generations, which is kind of amazing, but it happens. And uh, in terms of social oppression, you know, we were in an interesting situation of, of you know, 
being women in a very, very much of a patriarchal system, and uh, which says men go here, women go there, men do this, women do that. You know, men can can have these things, women can't. And then, that, so so you know, so because of this body, okay, we're in that category, and. Uh, and then there's the ultimate teaching that comes in that says, don't identify. Don't identify with any of it. Don't identify with being a woman. Don't identify with being a man. It's all empty. So this is when you're mixing the ultimate and the relative in a way that's kind of crazy-making, really. <laughs> so uh, so on a, on a conventional level, there are differences. So not that they're right, that, that it's right that there are differences, but it's a fact that there are differences. <laughs> and uh, different social, you know, there's, there's social oppression, different social groups experience social oppression because of skin colour, because of uh, gender, because of sexual orientation, because of age. All of these things, people experience prejudice because of these these qualities, you know, these, these, whatever, these, these parts of these aspects of the conventional world. And there are those who are in, in privileged positions and those who are in, in oppressed positions. And, uh, and that is part of our situation as, as, uh, you know, as unenlightened beings. That's what happens. I think it's a, it's a, very, it's a very harmful um, it's very harmful if we take an ultimate truth and put it onto a conventional reality. Because then we're not actually acknowledging the, the sentience, you know, the feeling, the, the experience of, of being human. We're, we're just sort of overriding that with, a, with an ultimate view. And the, the, the kind of complex thing is that, you know, when, when, like from here, when I'm looking out from here, <laughs> behind these glasses I'm not uh, I don't see I don't, I'm not seeing a woman or a man here I'm not seeing young, old I'm not seeing skin colour unless I do that I can see I'm, I'm seeing I'm seeing you actually I'm seeing all of you <laughs> that's what I'm seeing so you know, we, we're all looking out from the same space, you could say. We're, as we look out, we're all the same. It's the same open, empty experience of consciousness which is receiving whatever it's looking at. So I'm receiving all of you at the moment. It's very nice. All kinds of different ages and colours and sexual orientations and all of that. And uh, so on an ultimate level, you could say, we are all exactly the same, and what we look out from is is the same. But then, how we are in this physical body, it's related to differently. So this is something I looked at a lot in the in the monastic situation. My aspiration to awaken was in the heart. It's it's a, it's a it was a an intention, and it was exactly the same as some of my brothers in the in the monastic life. Exactly the same the heart's awakening, the heart's wish to awaken. But being in a female body and being in a male body, we meet very different conditions. And you can say, well, it's wrong, we should change it. And it is, and this is the situation. 
So you know, I'm sure many people here have their own stories in that, uh, in similar ways. And so then we have to we have to uh, honour that that reality. And that's why I think here at Spirit Rock, there's there's uh, care taken to make sure that people can can be in environments that feel safe. Because sometimes, you know, you might feel unsafe with. Uh, you know, they, like women might feel safe to be with women or people of colour to feel safe to be with other people of colour and, and to be in those situations you, you grow in confidence in your own manifest manifestation which is challenged by the external world and as you grow more confident in it then you don't need to be in the separate groups anymore you can, or you can choose to or not there's more of a sense of you found your place you found your confidence and your strength. But uh, not self is not about denying any self or, or blanketing that we're all the same. But it's about recognizing the process of self and that that process can be transformed and, and steered towards awakening. Really. But we have to also honor the conventional. You can do a chant on page 47. So that the chant lists the uh, foremost Arahant Bhikkhunis. This is the foremost female disciples of the Buddha. And we have that in, in Pali and in English, and we just start in English today. Among bhikkhunis of long standing is Gautami, mother and land of the Buddha, attained to the supreme state. May the power of her qualities always be a blessing to us. As foremost in great wisdom, Kemateri is renowned, disciple of the excellent Buddha. May the power of her qualities always be a blessing to us. Upalavana Teri is the highest of those with psychic powers, disciple of the excellent Buddha. May the power of her qualities always be a blessing to us. As the foremost among the experts, Patachara is famous, attained to the supreme state. May the power of her qualities always be a blessing to us. As the most excellent of Dhamma teachers, Dhammadina is named, attained to the supreme state. May the power of her qualities always be a blessing to us. Among nuns who cultivate meditation, Nanda Terry is named, established in the supreme state. May the power of her qualities always be a blessing to us. As the foremost of energetic ones, Sona Terry is named, established in that state. May the power of her qualities always be a blessing to us. As the foremost of those with the divine eyes, Sakula is famous, with seeing well purified, 
May the power of her qualities always be a blessing to us. Kundala Kesi Bhikkhuni is the most excellent of those with quick intuition, established in this very state. May the power of her qualities always be a blessing to us. Bada Kapilani is the foremost of those remembering previous births. May the power of her qualities always be a blessing to us. Bada Kachana Teri is the greatest of those with higher knowledges, having conquered pleasure and pain. May the power of her qualities always be a blessing to us. Kisa Gotami is the foremost of those wearing coarse robes, attained to the supreme state. May the power of her qualities always be a blessing to us. Sikalamata Bhikkhuni is the highest of those resolved on faith. May the power of her qualities always bestow great peace, health and happiness on us. May these and all the other qualities of the Bhikkhunis dispel all fear, sorrow and illness. Those who are stream-enturers and all others in training, endowed with faith, wisdom and virtue, with impurities partially burnt away, may the power of the qualities always be a blessing to us. And then the ending is on page 20. The noble, the perfectly enlightened and blessed one, I render homage to the Buddha, the blessed one. The teaching so completely explained by him, I bow to the Dhamma. The Blessed One's disciples who have practiced well, I bow to the Sangha. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.